the causal power of structure and the role of intellect. Under what conditions might one consider whether structures count as exercising powers? And when would it be most clear that they were so doing? And how might this relate to the idea of soul as form, which is in some sense akin to structure, in Aristotle's philosophy of mind? Consider the following cases. These I think on the handout. One, structures figure in the explanation of the special sciences, but the physical world is closed under physics. Two, structures figure in the explanations of the physical sciences, and the world is not closed under physics. Laws are emergent in the way they were believed to be by Broad and the British emergentists in the 20s. And as far as I can tell now by John McDowell, I asked him straight in Canberra about three years ago when he thought the world was closed under physics, and he said no. And I think I was a bit too surprised. How you combine British emergentism with Wittgensteinian quietism, I'm not sure. But I didn't pursue the point, and other people think I must have misunderstood him, or he must have thought I'd said something else, answered the wrong question. Anyway, and three is like two, but the emergent laws, for example, probably of biology or psychology, are teleological. In the case of two, it's not said that they're teleological, they're just emergent. I mean, I don't think Broad and Co. thought that the laws of chemistry did what they did because they wanted to get somewhere. Uh, with any end in mind, it's just that this complexity gave rise to behaviour you wouldn't have expected. In one, the explanatory laws attached to complex structures may or may not be teleological, but all, all are closed under physics. So, for example, if you think the world is closed under physics, but you could still, uh, modern biologists will still have teleological laws in biology, but didn't, wouldn't think that clashed with physical closure at the bottom level. It's possible to believe two in the emergence, non-teleological, and still not ascribe efficacy to structure, it seems to me. It's just that the elements in the structure influence each other differently when placed in certain arrangements. It can be seen, in other words, as alterations in the mutual influence of the atoms, the bottom parts, depending on their arrangement. One need not, I think, hypostasize the structure as such. What if three is two, and what emerges is teleological, this ontological reduction, as one might call it, is not possible, because there's no way of avoiding hypostasizing the whole as something aiming at the telos. Well, the purpose will presumably relate to the thing as a whole. In the biological case or the psychological case, the telos concerns not, as it were, the individual bits, but the telos of the, of, of the organized structure. Three, the teleological emergent non-physical closure view, is in my view clearly Aristotle's view, and it's sufficient for attributing power to structures. But with the exception of Tom Nagel in his recent fascinating book, Mind and Cosmos, few modern philosophers want to adopt it. Nor do they usually, with the possible exception of John McDowell and his enigmatic second natures, want to adopt even two. Modern Aristotelians in the philosophy of mind tend to want to defend one, or at least maintain that the question of physical closure is empirical and makes no difference to the general truth of the theory. Kenny, for example, with his view that Aristotle and Aquinas are close to Ryle, would fall into this category. As probably do a large number of philosophers who believe, mistakenly in my view, that Aristotle is a kind of antidote to Descartes. I want to consider here one philosopher who has recently worked out a version of what he calls hylomorphism. 
and who defends the causal efficacy of structure in a way that's consistent with one. He thinks that this applies to the mind-body problem and more generally. Right, so structures at all kinds of levels, but especially at biological. The philosopher in question is Bill Jaworski, and the idea is very clearly articulated in his book Philosophy of Mind, A Comprehensive Introduction, Blackwell's 2010. I happened to come across um, him on this partly because he's a sort of a colleague of mine at Fordham, when I'm at Fordham, and also at a conference in Munich, what's his name, organized Brunterup, uh, at the Jesuit University. Bill and I had a long argument, and then a conference in Fordham with uh, Dean Zimmerman and Dave Chalmers, myself and Bill, discussing this kind of thing. And I think what he has to say is interesting. He describes his theory as a modern version of hylomorphism. The core of this idea is to take structure or organization as ontologically basic. The term hylomorphism, of course, originates from Aristotle, but the modern theory is sim it, it simply is invoked. It takes macroscopic organization at face value, and so treating it as being as real and efficacious as the microscopic. Nothing exclusively Aristotelian or scholastic need be invoked. Here is how Jaworski explains his theory. And you've got these quotations on the handout. Hylomorphism claims that structure is a basic ontological and explanatory principle. Structure is also a basic explanatory principle in the sense that it explains why members of this or that kind are able to engage in the behaviours they do. It's because humans are organised as they are, for instance, that they're able to speak, to learn, and to engage in the range of activities that distinguish them from other living things and from non-living ones. Hylomorphism implies that there are two distinct kinds of properties, properties due to something structure and properties things possess independently of a broader structure. The properties of these structures are not idle. Emergent properties are not epiphenomenal, but make a distinctive causal or explanatory contribution to a system's behaviour. And to emphasize this point, he adds, emergent hylomorphic properties are not logical constructions out of lower level properties. They do not represent abstract ways of describing lower level occurrences or processes. Am I speaking at the right speed and the right volume and everything else of that sort? These last two quotations make two important claims, both of which I want to challenge. The denial of the epiphenomenal status of an emergent higher level properties such as structure is equivalent to the denial that Kim's exclusion principle applies to them. The exclusion principle states, in effect, that one cannot have two causes of an effect, at least one of which is a sufficient cause, without falling into overdetermination. It's assumed that overdetermination is not what one wants in the context. Now Kim uses this, of course, as an argument against supervenient physicalism as opposed to reductive physicalism, but that's not going to come into it directly. This combines with causal closure under physics to, seemingly, give the conclusion that if there is a sufficient cause for every given event that falls under physics alone, then supposed causes from other levels are redundant. The second quotation just given, which was the one that goes Emergent properties are not logical constructions of lower-level ones. They do not represent abstract ways of describing lower-level occurrences. 
That second quotation rejects an explanation of this uh, redundancy, so to speak, that the exclusion principle seems to lead to. Um, an explanation of this that might be given by a species of non-realists, namely, that these other levels are just abstract ways of describing lower level occurrences or processes. Now I want to defend this latter line, so let's first look at the accusation of epiphenomenalism. The above quotations, the last two that is, are followed by what might seem to be a direct denial of the causal exclusion principle. Jabolsky says, hylomorphists endorse causal pluralism. They claim that there are causal properties and relations that do not fit the mold set by physics. This view is compatible with all forces operating at a fundamental physical level, i.e. none at other levels, and is therefore immune to the empirical objections raised against emergentism. In ascribing to causal pluralism, the hylomorphist appears to be denying Kim's causal exclusion principle. But notice that the avowal of causal pluralism is immediately followed by the assertion that all forces are operating at a fundamental physical level. What one has, in fact, on Javorsky's theory, is an explanatory pluralism with causation adopted into the domain of explanation. The wholly external, mind-free element is force, and this is exclusively physics, exclusively micro. So causal exclusion has been replaced by what one might call force exclusion. And explanatory pluralism is now characterized as, or as including, plural causal explanation. But no one thought that explanation of all levels <coughs> excluded an appeal to causation. So Jaworski is really only claiming <coughs> sorry, that once one realizes that most explanations are causal explanations, explanatory pluralism is plural enough to constitute or ground a full realism at all levels. On the one hand, one might wonder whether explanatory pluralism is enough to justify or constitute the real efficacy of the non-basic levels. I mean, nobody denies explanatory pluralism. Nobody denies you get different explanations in physics and biology from the explanations you get in, sorry, in chemistry and biology from the ones you get in physics. People who think that the only real work is done at the bottom are not denying the explanatory use of the levels of description. On the one hand, one might well wonder whether explanatory pluralism is enough to justify or constitute the real efficacy of the non-basic levels. On the other, it sits well with Kim's belief that different ontological levels are not in competition with each other. Kim does not believe that his own principle works against the reality or efficacy of non-basic physical level. This irenic compatibilist position might be defended as an obvious piece of common sense. The truth makers for higher level explanations are just as real as those for physics. If bricks are real, then so is the house made of bricks. If bricks have causal powers, so does the house, in virtue of the bricks' powers. So if atoms have real force, combinations of atoms can constitute a real object, which has real causal efficacy compounded from the real forces of the atoms of which it is made. This seems to be common sense. Kim states the commonsensical nature of his position emphatically. The errant baseball didn't, after all, break the window. 
and the earthquake did not cause the buildings to collapse? This strikes us as intolerable. It's true, it does so strike us. Furthermore, one might think that what we have is a harmless case of over-determination, if you wish so to describe it. The baseball and the atoms which compose it are, in some obvious sense, the same thing. So one does not have two causes, but two ways of describing the same one. But one can't escape from the exclusion principle so easily, for these causes are not equal in status. In Jaworski's terms, all the force is with the physics. The rest just supervenes on that. It adds nothing. And anybody who thinks the world's closed under physics is going to say the same. It's the, 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 the high-level forces and the low-level are not equal. One supervenes on the other. So I shall argue that the impression that common sense about baseballs assists the realists about structures and its powers is an illusion. To consider this, let's step back ontologically, so to speak, and consider the question of what is involved in taking ontological claims seriously. How, one, how might one understand the apparent ontological question, are there any Fs, or do Fs exist? So, how to understand such ontological questions? I want to defend an approach to ontology which combines realism and conceptualism in what I hope is an intuitively acceptable way. I think the question, are there Fs, can properly be interpreted in either of two ways, depending on the F in question. One I call the conceptualist interpretation, CI, and it can be read roughly as follows. We have, this is on the handout, we have the concept F. Is the world so organized that it satisfies this concept in a way that is, I think that should be insufficient, for the utility of that concept, so the concept can be usefully employed. If the answer to this is affirmative, then there are Fs in the conceptualist sense. The other interpretation is realist, R.I., and goes roughly as follows. Forget about us and our concepts. If there were no conceptualizers around, putting God or divine minds aside for the moment, would there be Fs? If the answer to this is affirmative, then there are Fs in the realist sense. Common sense doesn't make this distinction, but I don't think that it finds it rebarbative. Why I think this will, I hope, become clear in what follows. Now, nominalists will find the realist interpretation objectionable because they will not find the realist view of properties and universals entailed by it acceptable. You can't say, apart from our concepts, what are they? If you're a nominalist, I suppose. I won't be concerned here to engage with nominalism of this sort. For I think that, if there is a world, it must be thus and so. And therefore it must be characterised by some properties independently of our conceptual practices. The nearest I'm prepared to come to nominalism is Little Roman 4 below. There are the following positions one might take on adopting the conceptualist and realist distinction and employing, employing it. One. Realism for all standard concepts, including those for natural objects and for artifacts. Two, realism applying to natural objects, but not to artifacts, which are treated conceptually. Three, realism for objects at the fundamental level, but conceptualism for the rest. Four, conceptualism for everything we know, 
and possibly for everything we are ever likely to know or even are capable of knowing. How the world is in itself, and there is such a thing, will always evade our grasp. We can only approximate to its actual properties. Most discussion of these issues in modern analytic metaphysics is in what one might describe as a mad dog realist spirit, as in one, and is only interested in the realist interpretation of the Arthur Eniaf's question. To say, for example, with Peter van Imwagen, that there are no tables, but only table-shaped arrangements of simples, is to ignore the conceptual interpretation as a candidate for answering the are there any F's, are there any tables, question. Van Inwagen's position assumes that the only interpretation of this question is the strictly realist one. If one took conceptualism seriously, then it's clear that, in that sense, there are tables, for the world is clearly so constructed as to make the application of this concept fruitful and useful. Now, just to back up uh, the... the the general value of this distinction, um, I want to look at some problems where it seems to me to help, other than the ones I'm directly discussing. So the usefulness of the conceptual interpretation for analytic metaphysics. There's a lot to be said for taking the conceptual interpretation seriously. But if it were applicable, one might solve a whole series of problems that wouldn't worry modern metaphysicians. These problems arise from applying a hard realism across the board. I've already tried to show in a paper on vagueness in the Aristotelian Society in 2008-9 that conceptualism can be used to deal with vagueness and associated sorites problems. Many, if not most, concepts outside the most exact sciences are subject to such vagueness. In brief, I argued the following. Vagueness, at least of the sorites generating kind, is a property of concepts, not of reality. The response to the paradoxes and conflicts with classical logic that vagueness generates should not be to try to develop a logic for those concepts that produces a formally valid natural language, incorporating all its idiosyncrasies, as for example a three-valued logic, nor to impute to vague concepts a hidden, hidden precision, as do epistemicists, but to use or refrain from using those concepts according to their usefulness, consistent with classical logic. So, for example, when a raised piece of earth is neither clearly a hill nor a mountain, one drops those terms and speaks in terms of particular heights. I argued that one should think of those such concepts as belonging to representational ontologies, use of which can be dropped when cases do not fit their paradigms. The relationship of different ontologies to each other is not random, as what I call the harmonization requirement, between the various ontologies we apply, but this is weaker than a formal logical compatibility. For example, Newtonian theory and quantum theory are strictly incompatible. But one can show that and how an essentially quantum world can sustain the application of Newtonian principles at most normal magnitudes. You drop the Newtonianism when you're dealing with magnitudes for which it doesn't work. Similarly, one can see how strictly continuous heights can make useful the categories of hill and mountain for many straightforward cases without needing to define the term hill and mountain strictly in terms of exact heights. Where it doesn't fit, the practice of using these concepts is suspended. 
This can only be done if one treats the relevant concepts in a conceptualist way. But the conceptualist holds that the are there F's question depends, in part, on whether the world will cooperate in the practice of using these concepts. And where vagueness comes into play, it won't. If one believed these concepts to pick out fundamental constituents of the world, then one would not be free simply to drop them out, drop them out of convenience. And the full rigours of logical consistency would be brought to bear. Some discourses, such as that of bold, not bold, hill and mountain, were never intended as basic. But the Newtonian ontology was. To apply it now, it must be downgraded to conceptualism. But vagueness isn't the only problem which conceptual is, help helpful in, is helpful in handling. A couple of further problems. The so-called many F's problem. The many F's problem has two versions. One essentially involving vagueness, one not. The vagueness version, in which F in question is typically something like cloud, concerns objects with indeterminate borders. Peter Unger argues that in these cases, one can draw the border in many different places, thus individuating many overlapping objects. The non-vagueness involving cases go as follows. Supposing that a complex physical object, a table, an oak tree, a cat, is made of a million atomic parts. There are almost indefinite many subgroups of those atoms which would be, or are, sufficient to constitute an object of the relevant kind. So in the case of the table, imagine all its atoms minus two, which are presently integral to the table. They still constitute a table, with a lot minus the two. If pursued, this line of thought leads to the idea that there are a vast number of actual tables contained within this one table, though they massively overlap. Or imagine the tree minus a branch, that would still be an oak tree. But that tree minus a branch is present within the actual tree, similarly for the cat without one of its paws, or simply without a few hairs or the odd atom. There are a tremendous number of proper part combinations sufficient to be an F within the actual F. And as each of these is sufficient to be an F, all those Fs are there and real, according to the many Fs problem. The realist has to struggle with the fact that there are many well-qualified candidates for being an F of the kind in question. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that a realist can't cope with the non-vague cases. This does seem one of the more peculiar uh, puzzles invented by modern analytic positions, to be quite honest, unlike the vagueness one. But the conceptualist has an easy route. He can simply say that this is not the way we deploy this concept. We deem there to be only one F whenever there is an F present, and the only practical way of treating it is as a single object. This deeming is not a conscious choice. Given our perceptual system, the table presents itself as unitary, and we interact with it as one thing. For example, even if there are an indefinite number of tables present, you can't do an indefinite number of different kinds of things with them. So our conceptualization is practical as well as, or perhaps rather than, intellectual. It's a matter of how we interact with the object. Third example of where conceptualism helps, the clay on the statue problem. A lump of clay is moulded into a statue of a man. The lump of clay and the statue seem to be, in an obvious intuitive sense, the same thing. They occupy exactly the same place, 
and two different physical objects cannot occupy the same place. They each weigh, say, 10 pounds, but their combined weight is only 10 pounds. Nevertheless, they have different identity conditions. The clay can be remolded into something else, and if this happens, it continues to exist, but the statue is destroyed. The realist has a problem with all such relations of constitution, whether or not he treats constitution as a form of identity. If only the base is treated in a fully realist way, then one can treat the composite object as a convenient way of conceptualizing some of what is out there, rather than as a further entity. So, let's try and apply this to the things we're talking about. Let's apply this to Kim and his baseball and earthquake. The baseball broke the window, but both baseball and window are to be understood in the conceptualist sense. So if one adopts conceptualism as appropriate for such concepts, there are baseballs, etc., but in the conceptualist sense. Similarly for the earthquake and the buildings. Only an extreme realist would feel that common sense was threatened by this reading. Kim's earthquake and Imwagen's table both exist, but on the conceptualist interpretation of what that is. What is at stake is whether the human perspective has a certain role in reifying what is in fact the micro-world in a certain kind of way. And if conceptualism is right, the human perspective does have that role. Now, in a sense, I can invoke David Armstrong on my side in this. David follows Plato in thinking that one need be a realist about universals or properties only for those that are, in some relevant sense, foundational for the rest. One like Plato, but Armstrong, the foundational ones, are the basic physical properties. This is on the handout. The properties that are of ontological interest are those constituents of objects, of particulars, which serve as the ground for the objects for the application of predicates. If we combine an a posteriori or scientific realism about properties and relations with the speculative but attractive thesis of physicalism, then we shall look to physics, the most mature science of all, for our best predicates so far. Armstrong wants to combine a kind of conceptualist, realist ontology that I'm advocating. But as a physicalist, he's a problem here. If everything that is not physics is not strictly in one's ontology, it is what I call conceptualist, it's not ontology in the realist sense, then what about the status of mind and psychology? In his, in his main work on universals, Armstrong distinguishes between universals and predicates. This corresponds to the distinction in what I have quoted between what is of ontological interest and our best predicates on the one side, and mere predicates that cut no ontological ice on the other. But if the mind is not ontologically basic, it itself is a mere predicate that cuts no ontological ice. How can it then generate the predicates that constitute the special sciences? Armstrong does not want to be Dennett, I'm pretty sure about that, but the idea that everything that is not physics is just conceptual makes psychology and all the special sciences a matter of interpretation without an interpreter, an intentional stance with no real intentional engine. Uh, I argued elsewhere that's incoherent in the case of Dennett, and it seems to me that Armstrong is no better off if he applies his, as it were, Platonist selectivism <laughs> to real universals, which I think is not a bad thing to do in itself, provided you're not a 
the fact you're a dualist and not a physicist. There is a sense in which any meteorological combination of atoms could be treated as an entity, and so could the combined sum of their forces, which are chosen as a, as a matter of human interest and perspective. Not arbitrary, of course, but well-grounded, but well-groundedness of conceptual practice doesn't entail strict realism. Talk of human interests might make it seem too intellectual. One of the most important things is the grain of human perception, what is salient to us and how it manifests itself in our senses. If we can see the independent constituents of an entity, we are less likely to think of that entity as basic. We can see the elements in a crowd, a swarm of bees, or in a weather system, and so are less likely to think that these things are fundamental, even if they seem to have a dynamic of their own. Notice that Aristotle did not think that weather had a, had a form, uh, even though it, it's a teleological system. This was presumably because he also thought that it was a mechanism with a mechanical explanation, and therefore it didn't need a form to make it do what it does. It just happens to work the right way. And we can see the bits, so to speak. We are generally happy to make a conceptualist interpretation of all these things. But for most organisms, we see them only as wholes. For such parts as we do see are essentially parts of the thing. Branches, leaves, limbs, teeth, etc. Not independent parts. If we saw a plant as a swirling mass of particles passing in and out of an organisational vortex, like a rioting crowd, then once we came to believe that the organisation was a product of the interaction of the particles, following only the laws of physics, and not an extraneous imposition, we would probably find it natural to make a conceptualist interpretation of plants. As it is, the nature of our perception seems to endow them with a greater degree of natural integrity than they would seem to possess from a more microscopic viewpoint. Both as entities <coughs> and as causal agents, macroscopic objects seem to be byproducts of their micro constituents. What does it mean to call the higher order processes byproducts? It rests on the premise that everything that happens happens because of the microdynamics. Apparent higher laws, though useful generalizations from our standpoint, do not give the real reason why anything happened. It is like the case of the plant turning toward the light. Common experience leads us to say that it does so in order to gain more light, <clears throat> because it needs light to survive and replicate. But science tells us that this turning happens because of the chemical reactions involved, without any fundamental teleology. But were not these chemical processes selected because they allowed the plant to get light, and thus teleology is restored at the level of biology? <clears throat> yes, in a sense, but only in the sense that certain microprocesses, from their own dynamics, repeat themselves in a certain way. The microprocesses do not repeat, do not get repeated because they lead to the replication of the organism. Their repeating themselves is the replication. Dawkins's expression, the blind watchmaker, as a label for nature, is illuminating. The blindness in question is not primarily cognitive, it's volitional. Nature does not intend to produce watches, or eyes, or organisms in general, if it's close to the physics. The developing of the quantum field 
which is blind to its byproducts, merely produces things which can be usefully so classified from the perspective of a macroscopic rational animal. Davidson rejects Kim's exclusion principle, but rather ironically, we can draw on a legitimate point of Davidson's in its support. Davidson claims, very plausibly, that it's only at the fundamental level that there are what he calls strict laws. Laws at other levels involve ceteris paribus clauses and a certain degree of approximation. They strongly suggest that, though they are useful explanatory tools, formulated on the basis of more exact processes that underlie them, the laws of the special sciences are not entities in their own right. It will be natural to argue the same way for the entities to which those laws attach. Davidson's reason for ex rejecting the exclusion principle, which he does, rests on some very controversial features of his system. He claims that causal relations are entirely extensional, and so events are not e efficacious in virtue of any of the properties involved in them. So you cannot claim that some of them are active and others idle. The motive behind this is some kind of nominalism, which wishes to treat properties as simply descriptions under which events fall, and as such not agents in the world. At the same time, he wants to treat the mental as purely conceptual, and the basic physical as, in some sense, more real. For further discussion of Davidson's confusions, see something I wrote in 2003, if you want to be Conceptualism, biology and psychology. The following is a natural response to the conceptualism about the non-fundamental that I've been defending. Some might argue that what I say is plausible for tables and baseballs and possibly for meteorological phenomena such as weather systems and earthquakes. But what about the things Aristotle really thought of as substances? Biological entities, plants and animals and humans. Surely they are not manufactured conceptually. I believe that the best way of approaching this issue is through a discussion of the work of my former undergraduate tutor, David Wiggins. David Wiggins has demonstrated in a masterfully developed series of monographs that the logic of identity with Leibniz's law rules out the possibility of relative identity. The doctrine of conceptualism for all ordinary entities that I have defended seems likely to leave open the possibility of relative identity because the same piece of the material world might be conceptualized in different ways for different purposes. But what Wiggins actually shows is that relativity of identity is impossible within any given ontological framework. But if the concepts in question are ones the use of which one can suspend, they need not be made formally consistent with other representational ontologies that one might choose to employ. One always has the option to withdraw the conceptualization that is leading to trouble and adopt one that is more appropriate or basic. On the other hand, if the entities in question are taken as strictly in a strictly realist sense, then one is bound by Wiggins' argument. So what Wiggins says must be applied if you think that the entities under discussion are fundamental and interpreted according to the realist account. Wiggins, as a good Aristotelian, thinks that ordinary macroscopic objects, especially biological organisms, are paradigms of fundamental substances, and so his logical constraints must apply to them. 
I've been arguing that they are not, in the appropriate sense, fundamental, and that that is why Wiggins' logical discipline doesn't apply. Does this solve the problem of organisms, oak trees, cats, and worse, other human beings? Maybe what I've said so far is satisfactory for vegetable organisms, and what about, but what about animals like cats that are normally thought of as conscious, and human beings? Surely these are things like mountain, surely these are not things which like mountains or baldnesses, or even baseballs, that one can suspend from one's fundamental ontology. The answer to this will depend, to a great extent, on whether one's a physicalist. Considered as a non-conscious organism, an animal will be in the same category as a plant, namely a vortex of changing atoms formed entirely in accord with the laws of microphysics. Seeing this as an entity, which is more than a highly organised cloud of particles, would depend on finding ourselves conceptualising it as such, as with the oak tree. But isn't the cat's consciousness real in a way that is independent of our conceptualization? The correct answer is, I think, yes. But it's difficult to see how this could be the case if the cat's subjectivity were not something over and above the organization of elementary particles in its brain. Now, it's not my purpose here to engage deeply with the philosophy of mind uh, of that uh, materialist issues. But I shall briefly give reasons for this claim. If it is right that, in general, organic life is to be interpreted conceptually as our way of making sense of certain patterns, which are a byproduct of development at the micro level, say at the quantum field, as presented through our senses, then the same will apply to subsystems within organic life. Thus it applies to neural processes, especially as functionally understood. This leads us to the self-undermining position that I said above Armstrong is committed to. The very engine that is responsible for conceptualization, the human mind, is itself a unit only within the light of conceptual activity. This is the same problem as faces Dennett's interpretationist stance, and I've argued against it elsewhere, as have others, for example, Jen Hornsby. So here I shall simply assume that conscious states are fundamental, in at least a property dualist sense. These mental states will be out there in a fully realist sense, in the same way as whatever constitutes the fundamental level of matter. But will the cat's mind, considered as a complex entity, also be real? Or will it depend on our reifying it by one of our concepts? Is there, for example, a many minds problem corresponding to the many bodies problem, if you try to be a realist about minds? Remember that the many Fs problem has two forms. One of them depends on the vagueness of the boundaries of most bodies. It's plausible to deny that minds are vague in this sense. If M is a mental state, then there must be some mind to which it belongs. This will not be true for a pure Humean, for on that theory an impression can exist independently, detached from any mind, and therefore presumably in an indeterminate relation to a given mind, half attached, like a hair that is falling out, or a water droplet at the margin of a cloud. I shall simply assume that this cannot be true for mental states. One may be only vaguely aware of some state, but in so far as it counts as mental, it belongs to some particular mind. This still leaves the non-vague version of the many S problem. After all, if you take all the cat's mental states and think away one sensation, you still have a feline mind. So are there not many cat minds present, 
I said when introducing this problem earlier on that I wasn't certain that there might not be a realist solution to it. In the case of minds, I think there certainly is. In so far as it is determinant, determinant whether a certain mental state belongs to a given mind, then one can insist on a maximal criterion for the identity of a mind. It consists of all the mental states that are co-conscious. That very mind could have contained one mental state less, but it does contain all the actual co-conscious ones. So the answer is that the mind as a whole will be real and unitary, and unitary provided that the co-consciousness relation and its scope are real, independent of our conceptualization. The cat will then have one body, not, or not primarily, because of the way we conceptualize it, but because the one consciousness of the cat acts upon it as a single object. The cat does not have to maneuver a set of bodies. It's not like herding cats. So the cat's agency does for it something parallel to what our intelligent interaction with the world does for us. The same line of argument as applied to cats applies to humans. And the individuality or uniqueness of one's body is a result of the fact that one thinks of it and acts upon it as a unity. We've seen that taking a conceptualist stand to most, if not all, non-basic ontologies makes intuitive sense and contributes towards solving several of the problems that worry contemporary analytic metaphysicians. But it comes at a cost, namely that the mind or mental states must be counted among the things that are basic. And so this approach is not open to a standard physicalist. The thinking, conceptualizing subject must be amongst the things that are real in the strongest sense, and therefore a form of radical dualism, if the material bits there, uh, must be adopted. This conclusion, so far, seems to be that minds and fundamental physical entities are real in a realist, not conceptualist sense, and that all intermediate entities, including biological ones, have only a conceptualist status. This seems to be very un-Aristotelian. Is there an Aristotelian way out of this? Well, here's a gesture in that direction. We'll take one in a minute. I argued in my entry on substance in the Stanford Encyclopedia that one of the senses of substance in Aristotle was a teleological sense. Not very controversial. I castigated Wiggins for suggesting that this was a sense that we should drop. It's the one he likes least. He thinks it gets in the way of a more scientific sense, of stuff sense, as it were, a sortal sense. I also noted that somewhat the somewhat paradoxical fact, noted by many, that the best illustrations of Aristotle's concept of substance, namely artifacts, were not actually good instances. This is precisely because teleological notions apply most neatly to artifacts. Artifacts can operate according to purely mechanical principles, but their existence presupposes design and purpose. If one held that the universe was fine-tuned so that it would give rise to macroscopic objects of the natural kinds that we find, then they would be reinstated as substances under the teleological criterion. And our conceptualism in reifying them would merely be reflecting the structure implicit in the design, the plans, if you want, of the logos or the first cause. Brackets, this emphasis on the teleological nature of substance also, I believe, allows one to make good sense within an Aristotelian framework of the doctrine of transubstantiation without running afoul of non-Aristotelian science. This, of course, is bringing us uh, uh, into a lot of very controversial issues. 
and I, won't, uh, I will not find favour with those who favour a secular, non-Neoplatonist interpretation of Aristotle. So I shall leave us mainly with my, med my negative conclusions. Thank you.